Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Hello and welcome to the March edition of the Historic Racing News Radio Show. This month, we'll be talking about Aston Martin as the brand embarks on a new journey into Formula One. Joe Bradley is here to talk about the previous history of Aston Martin in Grand Prix racing, and that's quite a long time ago. Jim Roller will look at Aston's illustrious history in sports cars, and particularly, obviously, at Le Mans. And our resident news hound, Paul Jurd, has been keeping up with what's happening on the historic racing scene. We'll also take a look at their latest books published this month. And of course, we pay tribute to the governor, Murray Walker. Welcome, Paul Jurd. And uh, you've been a busy boy of late. I have, and there's been, there's been lots going on. And probably I think the biggest news since our last, last update is that the UK government is lifting the fourth lockdown in England which has seen Motorsport UK announce that uh, they will start granting permits for motorsport events from the 29th of March onwards. And that's the events really following their guidance and protocols that were in force for those situations last year as we came out of lockdowns. So uh, although racing can start currently at MSV, who run Brands Hatch, Netterturn, Autumn Park, Cadwell Park, and of course the meetings at Donington Park, are saying they do not expect to be allowing spectators in before April the 17th. And uh, even I think when we do get spectator access to race meetings again, unfortunately, it's looking very, very likely it's going to be on the same basis as last season. So no access to the paddock, pit lane, garages area, etc., etc. during events. Now, this also means that for the competitors, we're going to be seeing those innovations really brought in last year of uh, online signing on, online drivers briefing. And uh, the one that I I love, self-certification of your vehicle for scrutineering. And uh, yeah, yeah, you can see that from a safety point of view, <laughs> fine and dandy. But, you know, yeah, honest gov, that's a three litre engine. Trust me on this. <laughs> now, hopefully when everything comes back, that should see meetings such as the Masters who are at the uh, at Donington in early May. They'll be sorry. The Donington Historic Festival in early May will have their uh, be able to have a number of spectators, albeit without limited access. And uh, amusingly, the non-elite events are allowed spectators in, but uh, the elite events such as touring cars are not allowed spectators for another month. So that's an interesting one. One of the first meetings to be run will be that Masters Formula One Festival at Donington Park on that first weekend of April. And uh, we know that entrants have been testing at Donington, so everything still looks on course for that to happen. And uh, although obviously in current restrictions, we can't see yet, a lot of the European drivers are coming across. Entries are looking good with, uh, with 25 cars in the HSCC single-seater race there. Now, we mentioned Motorsport UK. Now, another key thing that they're actually doing and something that I think the competitors amongst us could get involved in is that they've announced an initiative that really sees them be embarking on a full reform of their national competition rules. So essentially the blue, blue book that is the Bible for motorsport in the UK. And their goal is to try to refu- review and reform all the rules within the yearbook with the aim of examining each rule, simplifying and modernising where required and uh, really just tidying up the structure and uh, also ensuring compatibility with the FIA's International Sporting Code. And uh, they've got the target of actually having that in place by the 1st of January 2023. 
So, uh, yep, they're looking to redraft it in a simpler and clearer language, which some of it can be a little. I think some of those rules have been in place for a long, long time. And also to have a system that's actually very, very easy to revise when necessary. They're obviously looking for competitors' input for that and a lot more information on uh, the Motorsport UK website. We are still seeing a lot of uncertainty over the resumption of uh, racing worldwide and spectator access with some date changes now. And uh, the second half of the year is potentially looking very, very busy. The Goodwood Road Racing Club have announced that their members meeting, which traditionally opens the season at the West Sussex Circuit, will move from its May date to the weekend of the 16th and 17th of October, thus effectively closing their season rather than opening it. And uh, the organisers say they're basing their decisions on the government's current roadmap to uh, ease those restrictions. The weekend will still feature the usual crowd-pleasing events such as the uh, SF Edge Trophy for those uh, dramatic Edwardian-era cars where uh, a great crowd-pleaser where the drivers are really sat more on than in their cars. And uh, the always entertaining Jerry Marshall Trophy races for the saloons. The planned rally sprint would also go ahead on the Saturday night, as will the uh, the fireworks, uh, an event that uh, always goes with a bang. So uh, if you have members meeting tickets and can't make the new dates, then please contact Goodwood. And uh, they are still hoping high and fully planning for the Festival of Speed and the Goodwood Revival to run as planned at the moment. One meeting that we have very recently lost is uh, the Le Mans Classic for this year. And uh, with the moving of the Le Mans 24-hour race itself to August, a lot of the infrastructure that would have been in place for the Classic will not be there for that date anymore. And I think plus the uncertainty over the spectator access have uh, really been the drivers for Peter Auto to now announce that they're moving the event to 2022. But that does mean there would also be an event in 2023 with a special centenary event marking 100 years of the Endurance Classic. Peter Auto will be at Le Mans in July, though, now running a meeting using the uh, the permanent Bugatti circuit, which will feature Group C, Endurance Racing Legends and the usual Peter Auto series. And uh, I have to say, I think that's possibly the first time the Group C cars will ever have gone uh, under the Dunlop Bridge down the hill and then turned right at the bottom. Also on the move is Peter Auto's Tour Optic 2000, which will now take place in early September. And uh, it's really hard to think of an event less suited for a pandemic environment. A fleet of cars and support vehicles with their attendant crews travelling thousands of kilometres across France from Paris to Nice to compete in timed events was really never going to be a good idea. So Peter also have sensibly reacted to the current social climate and moved their event, which has also caused their Dimwheel Trophy event at Castellet to move to that first weekend of May. There has been some racing though, with Masters Endurance Legends served uh, two races at Sebring recently with uh, David Porter winning in his mighty uh, Peugeot 908 in both races, lapping the field in race one, including the, uh, the usually very rapid Audi R8 of Travis Engen that came second. A notable entry was that of uh, Formula F1 star Roberto Moreno, who was out in an HP, HPD Honda ARX 03B, but uh, retired from race one. The Masters and Juris legends are in action again at Laguna Seca in May, where they are joined by the Masters Historic Formula 1 and the new Masters Formula Atlantic Plus series that uh, we discussed a couple of podcasts ago. There is also some news on the rally front. Still no news of really, unfortunately, what's happening with the British Historic Rally Championship, but uh, the FIA European Historic Rally Championship is on course to hold its opening round the second weekend of April with the uh, 36th San Remo Rally Historico in Italy. And that's got a strong entry featuring some classic cars and there's even a, a Lancia Rally 037 entered a Delta Integrale, a raft of Porsche RSRs, and uh, they all should be a great sight on any rally stage. Rather sadly, we do seem to be bringing you a lot of news of deaths recently, 
And one name to add to that sad tally is Manfred Kramer, who with brother Erwin run Kramer Porsche, who built, prepared and raced Porsches and endurance racing for almost four decades. They were forever really associated with the 935, which uh, Porsche introduced to comply with the then current Group 5 regulations in 1976, only to be stunned when Kramer arrived at the opening round of the new World Championship for manufacturers. That's a great name for a championship, isn't it? With an almost identical car, thanks to having obtained sneak pictures of the works car during testing. Bob Wallach and Hans Heyer raced the 935 K1, and that K suffix was to become a famous one on 935s. They won Le Mans outright in uh, 1979 with a 935 K3, and that was the first production-based car to uh, arguably do so for 25 years. Klaus Ludwig was the winner, and he was partnered by the American brothers Don and Bill Whittington, who uh, basically wanted Bill to start the race. And uh, after a discussion with the Kramers, who really wanted the experienced Ludwig in the car, they actually bought the car on the morning of the uh, race so that Bill could start it. And uh, reputedly, they uh, they asked um, the Kramers how much they wanted for the car, in which case um, a suitcase crammed with $290,000 in notes soon arrived. Let's, uh, let's not discuss the provenance of that money. In the Group C era, Kramer Racing 956s and 962s were a staple of virtually every World Championship grid. And in the 1990s, they ran their K7 and K8 open sports cars based on the Porsche running gear. A name that resonated through many years of sports car racing, the uh, the death of the final Kramer brother is a sad loss. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. Thanks, Paul. Interesting stuff there, I, I think. It's interesting to hear you talk about the Le Mans 24-hour race rather than the Le Mans Classic because one of the things there is I'm not convinced that the Le Mans 24 hours is going to happen in August. And I'm not an expert, as you well know. But nonetheless, I think it is going to be touch and go for that. The other thing is that you mentioned about the whole thing of them running the Group C cars and the support races on the Bugatti circuit. Now, one of the things that you and I know very well, and most people who are listening to this show would know, is that the Bugatti circuit during the 24 hours is very heavily used for other things. It's a car park. It's a place where motorhomes are set up. It's got all sorts of different things that are happening there. (laughs) I've even fallen asleep in my car on the Bugatti circuit during or in between commentary stints. So therefore, yeah, I think it's it's definitely going to be a bit of a challenge. And that kind of indicates that they're not expecting to be able to host a huge amount of people there in August either. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Talking of Le Mans, um, my book review that we're talking about today is I'm going to start with Mr. Le Mans. And that's the book about and by Tom Christensen. And I think the first thing I'd say would be that this long-awaited motorsport book, and it has been long-awaited, is a bit unfair in its title, because I think that he's worth much more than being just Mr. Le Mans. And this book kind of highlights that, that he's he's had a, a strong career in single-seaters, um, in the comparatively junior formula, yes, sure. But nonetheless, he uh, he was very strong in, in single-seaters in Europe and in Japan. Interestingly, the book explains that he also had a test drive for Tyrrell. And 
it kind of beggars the question as to whether the world would have been different, the sports car world would certainly have been different if he'd got that drive. And if his career had moved into Formula One and single-seaters much more than getting the sports car drives, and we'll never know that, but it's an interesting thought. The other thing, I think, is that he talks about how he got into sports cars, and the story is that he was at home in Denmark and he got a phone call from Ralph Jutner from Joost Racing, who said, um, would you be interested in driving our car at Le Mans? Yeah, that's interesting. That's very interesting. This was said to him, though, 10 days before the Le Mans 24-hour race, and only 10 days. And that he said, yes, of course I am. Um, can you be at our factory in Germany tomorrow morning to discuss it? Now, that requires a fair degree of commitment. It was only to discuss it. He went, he got the drive, they hammered out a deal, and that he he sat alongside Stefan Johansson and Michele Alboreto and won the race. His first time at the Le Mans 24 Hours, he won the race in that TWR Porsche, which was, of course, developed from the Jaguar XJR 14. But nonetheless, he went and won it. And by 2000, he was in the Audi team. And that's, that is very much a question of the rest is history. He went on to develop that. The story's great. The, the layout of the book is quite interesting because his, um, his co-writer, Dan Philipson, who is a journalist, has effectively set the scene in his narrative and then it will cut to a bit about TK in terms of him talking about what actually happened. So it's almost like a, an interview format throughout the book, which is, which is great. I loved it. Love the book. Um, it's a £40 book from Evro Publishing and you can buy that direct at their site, everopublishing.com. Other books we've read so far this month, um, we had Shutter and Speed, which is the second volume of a book by Gary Critcher. And eclectic is undoubtedly the word for this. It's all photographs. It's uh, photographs with, with some, some captions, but not very much. And that Gary Critcher has collected a very random set of photographs from everything from 500cc Formula 3 in the UK to Formula 5000 in California. Some of the photos are of professional quality. Some are not. Uh, he's got them from all sorts of places, including, as he says in the um, in the foreword, from things like car boot sales and bookshops. And he just bought them and has put them together in what is almost a scrapbook. And I think it's it's great for that. So that is Shutter and Speed, Volume 2 by Gary Critcher. You can get that from shutterandspeed.com and it'll cost you £15. Other books. The Jaguar XK120, the story of chassis 660725. Written by Simon Ham and Paul, I can hear you now saying, not another Jaguar XK120 book. But it is. But it's it's a bit different because it's almost a social history. It's a 
the car was started, it, it was shipped out to Singapore and very quickly changed hands and its new owner took it to Malaya, nowadays Malaysia, where he was working on a rubber plantation and that the story is very much the story of English colonialism. You can only say that, the British colonialism, I should say. And that he he talks in the book about the fact, and he tells Simon Ham the stories of the car's early competition career, which would be a load of blokes standing around in the bar at the country club, and they decide that they were going to have a race round the block and back, and the loser was the one who uh, bought the next round of Singapore slings. <laughs> so I think it's... It's it's interesting, and obviously it's set in the backdrop of the Malaya uprising, which was a serious bit of history and cost an awful lot of lives. So we've we've uh, we've got all of that as well. Car eventually came back to the UK via Canada, but that Bob Henderson, who owned it, was very much a an engineer by profession and also. By tinkering standards, he did all sorts of things to his XK120, including, would you believe, Paul, turbocharging it. <laughs> now, I think that this must be the only turbocharged XK120 in the world. It didn't last long. It, uh, it, it wasn't a success, but there are some great pictures in the book of the turbo sitting on the side of the XK120 um, engine, the XK engine. It's a pleasant read. Um, it's as much a trip down... Britain's colonial past memory lane as anything else. It's um, it's a good value book at £20. Interesting for all of that. Available from porterpress.co.uk. Next one on the list is, would you believe, a, uh, a French book. A Bugatti Panorama Illustré des Mondes uh, Model. You like that? Which uh, is by Didier Bordes. Obviously, it's a French language book. But that doesn't really change anything very much because what we're talking about here is a complete pictorial list of every Bugatti type ever made, including the new ones, the Chiron and the Veyron and those because right the way back to uh, 1911 when the Bugatti name first appeared on a car. One criticism I would have of the book is that although the information in it is almost encyclopedic, all the pictures have been cut around in the same way you might, you might have done, Paul, when, when you were putting a scrapbook together. I know I did, where you cut around the outline of the car and stick it in your scrapbook. So all of the atmospheric shots of particularly the Bugatti racing cars, they're not there because you've just got a picture of a car. But nonetheless, it's interesting. It is very much a reference book and it's very much a Bugatti book um, it's good stuff, you can buy it from Horton's books and that will cost you 40 quid now we talked just before Christmas, before publication about the Michael Turner collection by Chris um, Parker, that this is a beautiful book um, That sorry it's Chaz Parker um beautiful book it's got everything going for it anybody who's been around motorsport for any length of time will know michael turner's work brilliant artist 
he's painted everything from Formula One and sports cars and Le Mans 24 hours and a few touring cars and record breakers and all sorts of things. And most of all of those are in this book that it goes right from his earliest black and white sketches in 1960, right up to when he retired his last work being the Nico Hulkenberg and Sergio Perez picture of 2016. So huge changes. I mean, he's, he's very, very famous for things like the Sterling Moss 1961, Lotus 18 at Monaco, those kind of things. I grew up with that picture on my wall. So therefore, yes, I, I remember it, it well, but there's some lovely things. One of the things about Michael Turner, though, is that he takes these pictures or creates these pictures in a way that you couldn't do if you were taking a photograph. He will take lots of photographs of cars, tracks, um, both during races and afterwards. And then he will create his artwork. So what he does is you will get a view of what it's like to be hovering six feet above the grid, halfway down the grid at the start of a Grand Prix standing in the middle of the track at Eau Rouge as the cars come down from La Source towards you, which you couldn't ever get from a photograph. And I think those are great. His attention to detail is phenomenal. So you get the atmosphere, but you also get the accuracy. And I cannot recommend this book enough. Anybody who is interested in the history of motorsport, Michael Turner Collection, by uh, by Michael Turner and Chas Parker. Great. It's a Porter Press book. It's 70 quid, so it's not cheap, but uh, nonetheless, it's a great thing. Coming full circle, we come to a book called Full Circle, which is by Patrick Shortle. Now, that might ring a bell for a few people. Known as Rick Shortle in his racing career, he was a demon Formula 4 driver, and he's brought out this self-published autobiography about his life. And that's everything, not only to do with motorsport, but, you know, his career as a plasterer and everything in between. It's a great thing uh, that his nemesis in the 1985 season, when he was in Formula Ford, was one Damon Hill. So that kind of says it all, I think, about how good Rick Shortle was. Great book, great uh, great read, and it'll only cost you just over seven quid and you can get it on Amazon. So yeah, if you've got if you've got a few a few quid spare and you'd like to while away a wet afternoon, a great way of doing it. Finally, I want to talk about a magazine, and we don't normally review magazines on the Historic Racing News radio show, but we do with this, and this is the 96th magazine. 96 magazine is produced by the 96 Club, which was created by Ray Belm and Michael Scott. Ray Belm was was stopped for speeding at 96 miles an hour and realised that that wasn't a very wise thing to be doing on the uh, public highway. So he and Michael Scott started the 96 Club, which was about private track days long before track days were a thing and that they've created this this club which is by invitation only 
um, it is very much for gentlefolk and that they've now produced this 96 magazine it's only taken them 45 years to get around to that but nonetheless they've created that and that yeah it's a good read it's a lifestyle lifestyle mag it's it's got watches and yachts and holidays and all of those sorts of things but it's a it's a good read 96 magazine and um you can find it online we can find how to get it online so that's where we've been in terms of books over the course of the last month next month we've got two real crackers for you we've got gtr mark cole's book about the mclaren gtr development from the f1 and also we've got peter hyam who's done his latest formula one car by car um decade and we'll be looking at that as well but that's yet to come you can find all of the full reviews of all of these books on historicracingnews.com and don't forget you can always also find us on facebook or at hist racing news and uh, be pleased to hear any of the thoughts that you've uh, you have about those it's nearly three weeks since we heard of the death of murray walker and whilst nobody can be surprised at the death of a 97 year old man i think we see it as the changing of an era the end of an era with uh, with losing murray because murray was so much more than just motorsport he was a national treasure and i know it's a a much abused thing but I think we we all felt that we wanted to recognise that and just to give some thoughts to that. Now, Paul Jurd, you encountered Murray several times, I know, and which occasion was it that uh, really stuck in your in your memory best? For me, Murray Walker's professionalism was really summed up by an incident when he was commentating on the uh, British Touring Car Championship for the BBC. Now, the races were uh, run on a Sunday, so they were filmed on a Sunday, then edited in the middle of the week with Murray adding his commentary to go out on BBC One's grandstand the next weekend. And uh, I stood with Murray at the chicane at Thruxton in that little press box, which is still one of the greatest views in British motorsport for the for a touring car race. And uh, on lap one, the pack came up Woodham Hill and we witnessed Charlie Cox rolling his Ford Sierra at speed right off the track. I believe he actually went over the boundary fence. It was a huge accident. And we discussed the incident and uh, waiting for the restart and sort of obviously saw got news that uh, Charlie was okay. And then watching the BBC edit the next weekend was a reminder of just how professional Murray could be. Because as the incident unfolded, he only revealed information at the same pace as it was revealed to the viewer. You know, he had tension and shock in his voice and wrapped every viewer up in the tension and shock of the moment and what was actually going on. And this was from a man who knew exactly what had happened, who was involved and the outcome. The easy option would have been to deliver the incident in a flat voice, etc. But Murray drew the viewer in, made them part of the moment. And it was really a reminder of how the drivers are driving on the edge and you know some of the dangers inherent in our sport. There's been an awful lot written about Murray Walker and online and on TV. And, uh, you know, a lot of people picking up on this cottage industry of Murrayisms. And uh, I have to say, I'm starting to find that a bit irritating as I don't think that really represents Murray at all. You know, any anyone talking live on a race which can last two hours reacting moment by moment to what's happening 
as well as juggling, juggling a fellow commentator and a producer in his ear is going to make mistakes. And I think, you know, myself and m- most of the historic racing news team have commentated either at circuits or on TV. And, uh, you know, we know that it's just pure hard work and can involve an awful lot of mental ball juggling. You know, a true professional. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. Thank you, Paul. Well said. Jim Roller, was uh, was Murray Walker well-known in the USA? Uh, I don't know if he was well-known in the sense of the greater American market, but he certainly was to fans of Formula One because he was the voice that was in every clip or anything that anybody was able to get online from from Europe in the early days. He wasn't part of the American broadcasts ever, but he was one of those voices that transcended to other sports. Um, People who were, well, uh, as you and I were discussing over the weekend, uh, the the chaps at the beginning of the rugby match uh, mentioned uh, their thoughts at his passing. So, like a Vin Scully in America or Pat Summerall, who was the American football announcer, Vin Scully, famous uh, baseball announcer, but also did the Olympics and basketball and, and all of these other sports. The The great ones are transcendent, and Murray was one of the great ones, so he was, uh, like the others, transcendent. And Joe Bradley, you, you uh, like all of us, grew up with Murray being the voice of motorsport on TV. Oh, very much, Paul. He was, he was Formula One, wasn't he? And if I've got to think hard to think about watching Formula One without Murray. And I think it was Raymond Baxter was probably the first voice of Formula One. And then we had this massive break of Formula One not being televised in the UK. And then the BBC came about their Grand Prix highlight show that was very much a part of um, compulsory viewing if you were a fan and Murray was just that program and he was as much Formula One as perhaps you know Fleetwood Mac the chain being the the theme tune and and for and and it was quite strange when the BBC lost the contract and went away from Formula One and we then had a different commentator and for me when Murray stopped voicing formula one races formula one changed for me strange i can't i can't really put my finger on it paul but it was a different formula one maybe it was kind of growing up because you know formula uh, mary walker was the voice of formula one and of course most of motorsport that was you know shown on the grandstand saturday afternoon sports Sure, Saturday afternoons was sport, wasn't it? On yeah, all, yeah. on all two of our channels that out of four that we had, <laughs> um, and uh, hard for Jim to even contemplate that. Um, but yeah, I mean, Murray Walker was was the voice, the man, and and now in a position of being involved in motorsport commentary myself, the way that Murray portrayed and and got the story across and kept that energy going. I find amazing to think that, you know, a guy that went on to, he didn't really, and, and let's not forget, he didn't become a, pro, a professional commentator until he was 60. He was doing all these other jobs. He had a real world life. And the, the commentary was kind of like a working hobby, like like most of us start out. I think one of the one of the great things about Murray is his uh, 
his life in the advertising world, he famously developed the the slogan, a Mars a day helps you work, rest and play. That was his. Um, yeah. Opal fruits uh, made the, to make your mouth water. Yes, that one. And that was and his. My, my favorite, which is that he held the account for um, a company called Trill that made budgerigar food. And that he, he ended up with uh, Trill um, helps your budgie bounce with health. But I think the, the favorite story of that is that Murray um, was faced with this, this Trill account. And they said, well, we have 85% of the market. So I don't really know how we can advertise to get more business. And Murray came up with this slogan on the basis, which says, if you're saturating the market, grow the market. And he started this campaign, which was called, or which went, an only budgie is a lonely budgie. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yes, a star in every way, and, and he will be sadly missed. Talking of Formula One, there's a new name on the grid for 2021, and of course that's Aston Martin. They didn't cover themselves in glory in the first race in Bahrain, but nonetheless, it's great to have a British racing green car back on the grid. I sometimes wonder if Eddie Jordan had any idea when he launched his team in 1991 that <laughs> it would be Aston Martin by 2021. And we all know that in between that, it's been Midland, Spiker, Force India, Racing Point, and I think probably four of the most ridiculous names of Formula One teams ever. But uh, but that's beside the point. Uh, this isn't Aston Martin's first go at Formula One. And Joe, you've been having a look back at uh, where they've been before. I'm not surprised, Paul, that they don't really shout about their history in Formula One. It was kind of a bit of a dipping the toe into the water. Um, they basically ran about six races all across the 1959 and 1960 championship um, and didn't really give it a good a good crack at it, really, to be honest. They had great drivers. Roy Salvadori, Carol Shelby, Maurice Trenignon uh, were the drivers, yeah. but they didn't really give it a good go. The car was called the DBR4. It was first entered uh, in the 1959 Dutch Grand Prix, but it was a car that was built in 1957. Um, why did they wait so long, having built the car in 1957, to actually race it? Well, they were a little bit busy with the sports car world, and they were busy with the DBR1 sports car, which, of course, we all know it went on to win the 1959 uh, Le Mans 24 Hours. And so they were a little bit diverted by the sports by sports cars, and you can kind of see why. You know, the, the, the sports cars that they were building win on Sunday, sell on Monday. They were in the business of selling sports cars to the public. So you can kind of see why their attention was diverted. Um, it's not a very glorious F1 past, albeit in the second race that they entered, which was the British Grand Prix, Salvadori qualified second. Now, you can imagine that with a what was effectively a two-year-old car. And let's not forget that back in the 50s, a car was developed over the course of maybe five, six, seven years. 
it wasn't like you have now where, you know, you have to have a brand new car every season. Um, in fact, a brand new car every six races, it seems, by today's Formula One standards. <laughs> so I, I'm pretty sure that the, the, the Aston Martin team, which was, of course, the David Brown Corporation back in 59 and 60, um, would have been absolutely gobsmacked by Salvadori putting on second place on the grid. However, um, <clears throat> the cars went on to retire. Uh, Salvadori finished sixth in that race. Uh, they then raced another twice. And then they raced, tw- well, I say raced. They entered the Dutch Grand Prix in 1960 with one car for Salvadori. It didn't start. They then entered uh, two more races in 1960. Uh, Salvadori retired and Trinidad, who was the second driver, came 11th. It's not really a, a, a history. When I, when I think of Aston Martin, I don't ever think of Formula One. I don't think of the DBR4. In fact, you've got to look pretty hard to get a, even a picture of Salvadori or Carol Shelby in the DBR4. Um, when you look at Aston Martin, if you Google Aston Martin, for instance, you'll get a lot more motorsport involving sports cars and endurance motorsport um, than, than you will ever have. And understandably, because six races is barely a history in Formula One, is it? And do you, do you think that with Shelby and Salvadori, they had the right drivers? I mean, they're brilliant sports car drivers, but were they right for Formula One? Oh, maybe, a, <clears throat> you know, Carol Shelby, Roy Salvadori, very, very competent drivers. And Paul, to answer that question, Roy Salvadori qualifying second for the British Grand Prix yeah. in the DBR4. I think that answers the question. I think they were more than up to the job of that time. And the car, yeah, it was in the the middle of that white hot revolution into mm. rear engine cars as well. So any front yes. engine car was was out of date before it ever got to the grid, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, considering you know the car was built and designed in fifty seven, um, they tried to develop the. Uh, the car into the 1960 season. Uh, the car was the DBR5. It was lighter. It had independent suspension. However, the, the engine was very heavy and it was still at the front. And across that 59-1960 season, that was when people like Cooper and Brabham uh, completely changed the face of race car design by putting the engine behind the driver and spreading that weight out um, the, the the car was outdated. By the time that car debuted in the 1959 Dutch Grand Prix, it was getting to the end of that design evolution coming to an end. And uh, so they, they, were, they were up against the ropes, weren't they? They were going to have to perhaps divert their attention away from sports car racing and really put 100% into Formula One to be able to catch up with the technology and the design technology that was then becoming more and more the requirement for Formula One. And do you, do you think that that was part of the problem, that maybe Formula One took second place behind the sports cars? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, I think, you know, it, it, you don't have to look too far into the history books. If you, if you, um, if you compartmentalise the Formula One, you, you, you kind of think... Well, why why are they being so lax about this? Why are they being so lackadaisical about this? You know, entering just four races. You know, the, the Holland, Silverstone, which was their home turf, uh, Portugal and Italy, 
why just that? You know, they, they missed Germany, they missed France, they missed going to the United States. If you're going to do it, let's do it. And maybe it was a toe in the water just to see. And maybe, I, I don't know, I, I, my research didn't go deep enough to find out what the decision process was and the people involved in that decision process having dipped their toe in the water. Maybe they were scared off by the advances that we saw at the beginning, the beginning of the 1960s with regards to race car design, that maybe that was the catalyst that then brought about the decision that, you know what, we'll just stick with what we're good at, which was endurance sports car racing, because, you know, current sort of Le Mans champions, um, and they, they were very at the very forefront of endurance sports car racing in that same period. And I suppose that also there's a parallel, isn't there, with Van Wall, who were hugely successful with their front-engine car, obviously partly designed by Colin Chapman um, with that cost in body. But nonetheless, they built a wonderful front-engine car. They tried a rear-engine car for what was called the Intercontinental Formula, which was when one and a half litres was the Formula One end of things intercontinental was using up the uh, the old formula one two and a half liter engines and van wall built a rear engine car which was built on a which was based on a lotus 18 believe it or not um and that it was a disaster just didn't work um and perhaps that aston were in the same place at the same time who who knows it's uh it's one of those strange things but um you know, we... I've, I've, yeah, I mean, Paul, you've just mentioned that you just, you just hit upon something that was perhaps even more significant in their decision process was the change of regs to the 1.5 small engine. And, I, you know, I've just hit upon the, the, the chassis design, the fundamental chassis design. But adding to that, the fact that we're then going to small engines of 1.5 litres, that was that was a complete change of mindset within the, you know, behind the garage doors at Aston Martin. Um, which were, you know, the 2.5, the big engines, the heavy engines, they would have had to start with a complete clean sheet of paper if they were to get anywhere against those small engines, the, the Coopers, the Ferraris. It was Ferrari who went on to win the 61 World Championship with Phil Hill. Um, it would have been a completely clean sheet of paper. And perhaps they just, you know, they were just starting to dip their toe at a point where things were changing massively and quickly and perhaps too rapidly for them and i think yeah i think add into all of those elements and that's probably why we didn't see any further participation and it's uh yeah it's it's a sign of the times isn't it that they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time i think yeah and, and jim was well was one, aston martin known at that time in, in the u.s um well yes um mainly because of its lamar victory um, but I think that, um, one of the points that is probably true in their decision-making, and this is just my opinion, so take it for what it's worth, but Formula One in 1959 and 60 was not the big deal that it is today. Um, it, it shared the spotlight very much so with not only uh, through the, through the 50s and 60s, not only with endurance racing, but also rallying. There was a lot of manufacturer interest in, in all of those. And I don't think that 
Formula One had the, you know, remember, there wasn't a U.S. Grand Prix, not that that's any great armager of things, until 1959. They didn't race in the Glen, you know, and it didn't have a permanent home until 61. And Formula One didn't become what we know it is today until the 70s in the Bernie era, um, when it pushed everything else in international motorsports to the downer rung in the interest ladder. And I think that there was a, you, you asked why they only, they only dabbled in it. I think that David Brown um, just thought that uh, it was, it was worth a try, but it wasn't as important as other things. And then combined with the fact that as, as you guys are rightly pointing out that the, they showed up with a car that was at the very end of the development uh, curve for what was going on in the rest of the sport, the cards were stacked against them from the, from the beginning. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's a very, very good way of putting it. Brent, coming up to date, who, uh, who managed to watch the launch a few weeks ago of the new Formula One car from Aston Martin? Um, Jim, did you see it? What did you well, say? Well, I, I did, uh, honestly, only because I knew we had this uh, podcast coming up and I wanted to make sure that I was fully in the know of everything going on. And uh, probably the word that best describes it for me was turgid. <laughs> yeah. And Joe, what about you? I, I've got the beep. I've got the beep thing ready. Um, I've never been a lover of these ridiculous launches. Um, I'm I'm kind of an old school purist where you know wheel it like like we used to do, wheel it out into the pit lane at a snowy Silverstone and pull the covers back. Uh, et voila. Um, you know that you, Tom Brady, who you know seven time Super Bowl winner. Not everybody knows Tom Brady's a Aston Martin ambassador. Did we really need to do that? I mean, that all all of that kind of thing, you know, the Gemma Artit and the actress who was in the James Bond movies. I, I can see why they're hanging on to the James Bond theme because they, you know, and all of that. And even, you know, Daniel Craig having a, you know, really, it's just not my scene. It's not really something that I'm a fan of. And Jim stole the best word to describe it, really. <laughs> I'll stick with yep. Jim's analysis on that one. Yeah, I can I can just see the uh, the logo on the side of the new Aston Martin now. <laughs> yeah, the only thing I can say is the best bit, the best thing about that launch was seeing the livery of the car. I think the livery of the car, what they're going to race with this season, is beautiful. It's it's not exactly British racing green in the purest of sense. But then again, neither was the Jordan 191, neither was the uh, Jaguar when that came into F1. It's just nice to see something close to that British racing green on a car. And is, I think is, the, the pink of the BWT main sponsor just really just it makes that car look fabulous. I think it's going to look great on track. I think is, you're right. is it close to the Felton green that the Aston Martins used to race in back in the is day? It? No. Um, no? Okay. No, no, not at all. It's darker. Okay. Um, but yeah, at least it's, it's you know it's a it's a metallic green, so yeah, I, I yeah. Think, yeah, I think they win on that one. Now we've talked a fair bit about the the history of Aston Martin, and that if you're an Aston Martin fan or a motorsport <laughs> fan, you'll think Aston Martin, you'll think Le Mans, and Jim, you you I know have a, a big interest in the history of the mark 
at Lasart and at other races as well. Yeah, uh, when you say Aston Martin, the first thing you think of is is Le Mans. But here's a here's a we'll start with a little quiz question for you two lads. Where does the name Aston Martin come from? Ooh, oh, I know this. this. I know you this. know this, Paul. Do you know that? No. Well, the company. Let me. Here's a hint. The company was founded in 1913 by Lionel Martin and Bob Bamford, and that uh, their first their first victory was at a hill climb in Buckinghamshire outside the village of Aston Clinton, and that, which you can still go to. You can still find that hill climb. And that it was the Aston, came from Aston Clinton, and the Martin was Nigel Martin, was that's, Lionel Martin. That's right. That's, <laughs> that's a bonus point to me. <laughs> and... and- there was no there was no Wikipedia used at all there, I can tell, because I know how long it takes Paul to get anything up on the computer. <laughs> yes, I'm, no, I'm, that was that was right I'm, off the top of his head. Yep. So there the, so that was the, the, the hill on the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> the hill climbs were their first effort in motorsport. Then they set some speed records in the early twenties at at Brooklyn's. I think it was ten records that they set in twenty two. And their history at Le Mans starts in 1928. So they go all the way back to the era of Bentley and Chrysler and Lagonda and, and cars like that. And this is when, this is when, of course, Bentley was dominating Le Mans, I think winning, what, five of the first uh, seven, seven or eight races. Um, and they had a series of, of class and index uh, victories. Uh, fans of Le Mans, We'll remember that back in the day that you had the overall winner, then you had class winners, but you also had these very interesting uh, index of performance, index of uh, 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 thermal efficiency. Runny cheese. Yes, is our uh, friend Charles Dressing uh, quite rightly coined the index of runny cheese or smelly cheese, as the case may be. but during the during the thirties, uh, Aston Martin's history at Le Mans really is 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 easily broken down into into three sections. There's pre-war, uh, being World War II, uh, post-war, and then the modern era. Um, what will what because because they because of internal decisions and history, uh, their participation was broken down in those three areas. So from from 28 to, to 39 in that pre, uh, pre-war pre era, they always had uh, th- two or three cars entered every year. Uh, they won during that time six class or index victories. Now, they, they also had the biennial cup back then, which was if you raced in back-to-back races, if you raced in, uh, in uh, 34 and 35, uh, you took the highest finisher combined of those two events and you won the biennial cup and uh, uh, Aston Martin took that. So they were always very competitive, but they couldn't, they couldn't quite get over the hump. They couldn't, they couldn't get to that overall victory. David Brown took over the company in 1947 after the war. And that's where the DB comes from in DBR one, DBR four, that's David Brown. And he, he very much, uh, Joe Bradley hit the nail right on the head. It was win on Sunday, sell on Monday. 
because in the early days, uh, Aston Martin was strictly a bespoke sports car. You, you know, if, if Paul wanted uh, a sports car, he could go to Aston Martin and they would build him one. Well, now with the, with the DBs, they were starting to certainly not mass produce anything, but they were, they were making a line of cars that they were, that they were trying to, uh, to sell. And um, in the, in the post-war era, it was a process of building uh, up to the, that ultimate success of 1959, uh, which was actually a banner year, which I'll, I'll, I'll get to in a moment. But here's another bit of trivia for you. Who was the first team manager for Aston Martin post-war? Very famous name. John Wyatt? That's right. That's right. In 1950, you know, they entered three. <laughs> <laughs> they entered three DB2s, and John Wire was actually the, the, the team manager. Um, in 51, and, and this was a time post-war of very rapid development. So in, in 49, the first post-war race, they entered six cars. They had a DBR1. They had three DBR2s. One of those had a Laganda engine, and only one car finished. Uh, and then in, in 1950, that's when John Wire came in, and uh, they much better. They shared uh, class wins and the index of performance with uh, with with. I love this one, the Monopole Tank X64. <laughs> you, can you imagine that? I'm, a, I'm driving a Monopole Tank in the 24 hours of Le Mans. Um, <laughs> then they developed the DB3, as you can see. So from 49 to to 51, they're they're they've they've gone from the DB1 all the way up to the DB3. Uh, Wire uh, didn't think that car was ready, however, so um, they he ordered up three of the older models, and they had a five-car entry. They had two uh, uh, lightweight DB2s, and then they had uh, two of the older uh, DB2s. And uh, again, uh, David Brown's personal car was actually put into the race so that they could uh, find enough cars for this entry. And Lance Macklin and Eric Thompson uh, gave, at the time, Aston Martin's uh, highest uh, overall finish, and that was third. Uh, they, they won the, the two- to three-liter class. Then there was a, another series of, of um, class wins uh, from 52 uh, up, through, up through 58, uh, they were able to get to second overall. And, and during this time, uh, the, the, you get Peter Collins, Paul Frere, Sterling Moss, yeah. all of these really famous, uh, Tony Brooks, Noel Cunningham Reed, all of these guys who were uh, the Whitehead brothers, um, all were um, oh, popping in my head, uh, were all <laughs> part of this, of this driver lineup. And, and this was bringing them very, very close um, the DB1s and DB2s had good class racing success, but this was during the time when Ferrari and, and Jaguar were stealing all the, the headlines with the, with the overall victories. And let's face it, at Le Mans, folks, you know, um, Tom Christensen and Jackie X were not called Mr. Le Mans and Mr. Le Mans 2.0 uh, because they took a lot of class victories. They They took the overall win, and that is still... Uh, to this day, uh, the, the big the big deal, and that's when 1959 comes along. Um, 
the DB3s had taken class wins in 55, 56, and 57. And 59 proved to be a banner year because not only did they do a Le Mans sweep, everybody remembers uh, Roy Salvadori and Carol Shelby, but second place overall went to Trentignon and Ferrer. And much of the race was actually uh, led by Sterling Moss and his teammate, uh, whose name escapes me uh, at this moment. But um, they, um, uh, I think it was Fairman. Yeah, um, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so Fairman and, and Moss were, were the rabbits. And they took off and broke all the other cars who were trying to keep up with him. And to the day he died, Carol Shelby gave Sterling Moss a lot of credit for he and Roy Salvadori's overall victory in that famous number five, which I have a beautiful picture of in my, uh, in my man cave. Uh, it's <laughs> always been uh, my favorite Lamar winner. It has nothing to do with the fact that it was the year I was born, um, but has always, always been what I thought was one of the, one of the one of the prettiest cars. Also in '59, they won the World Sports Car Championship, and again, this is where where Jack Fairman and Moss come in again. They won the Nurburgring 1000K. They won the Tourist Trophy. Uh, Shelby was in the team in, in, in that uh, race. So between Lamar uh, and these other two big victories, they they claimed what was then the FIA World Sports Car Championship. So from 1928 to 1959, they had one overall victory. They had uh, five other podium appearances, so six total podiums, and they took 15 class or index victories before they decided to to go off to, to Formula One, which uh, Joe has already documented with, with little or no success. Then the company really kind of fell on hard times. Um, and, and I'd love to hear your guys' perspective on that because um, during the – it was the in-house design. Everything, everything went a little weird after the after the the DB6 uh, things started to, you know, the streetcars. The the company struggled. David Brown eventually lost control, and it and it and it and it foundered, didn't it? It did indeed, and and I think one of the enduring things about anything to do with Aston Martin is that it's nearly always been either on the up or on the verge of collapse. And, you know, we, we now have um, Lawrence Stroll owning a, a hefty chunk of it, along with a consortium. And this is on and up because not only does he own the Formula One team, he now owns a significant part of the Aston Martin factory and, and road car company. Um but yeah, ever since David Brown, who in turn rescued it, and I, I think yes, I'm, he did. I may be wrong here, but I think he bought it for a hundred pounds um, on the wow. basis that uh, <laughs> you know there, there was no value in it. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's always been there or thereabouts in terms of disaster. Well, the the, the most recent up that uh, Aston Martin is on, in my opinion goes right back to Le Mans because in 2005 Aston Martin Racing was was reborn and that's really where most of uh, most of us have got the most recent without having to do a lot of research because uh, Joe and, and I and you Paul luckily were there for uh, a lot of their Le Mans success in in the 2000s 
they they took the, the their first big win was uh, in their maiden race in 2005. And that was, of course, was the uh, 12 hours of Sebring. I think I think you were there for that, Joe. Um, mm-hmm. They beat Corvette uh, and then they came second behind Corvette uh, and finished third and fourth The three races in the American Le Mans series. Um, and they had uh, uh, two entries at Le Mans 2005 with with um, Turner, Sarazen and Brabham finishing third. The other cars, uh, other car was was a DNF. This was back when it was called GT1 and, and those cars that was the DBR9. They were just absolutely fantastic. And yeah, I think it's also interesting to see that the Aston Martin brand, call it what you will, has always had customer cars as part of its racing program. And that, you know, you go right back to the the DB3 um, and, okay, the factory developed the DB3S in the middle of the 50s. Yes. Um, You know, sure, they only built five DBR1s and they were all for their own use uh they they let them go afterwards and uh, and uh, another little known fact jim clark raced the dbr1 at le mans in 1961 i think um for border reavers which was a scottish team but uh, and and it was painted dark blue so yeah but by and large yes they've always been a, a a team who sold cars as part of the the reason for their being. In 1954, uh, this this accentuates your point. When that DBR3, the supercharged model, the DB uh, DBR, the DB3S uh, mm. was made, there were 11 works cars and 20 customer cars. Were there really? Yeah. Wow. So so that has always been at the at the heart of what they've done, and it has. Um, that ha- that has carried on. I mean, even today, um, it, it, there was there was so much success in two thousand and five, six, seven, and eight with with all kinds of you know you can look and you can see class wins. Two thousand and six was when the uh, Vantage N twenty four production car uh, finished fourth in its class at the twenty four hours of the Nurburgring and twenty fourth overall. I think uh, that was that was an awesome race. I remember remember that vividly having been, again, lucky enough to, to be there for that. But you see, if you go through the, the history and you look at the results from 2005 through to, to 2020, you see so many um, customer cars. It's exactly what, what Paul is saying. Yes, the, the, the ProDrive entries or the AMR entries, which were the factory-backed entries, they were, they were always at the pointy end of the sword, uh, fighting it out with Corvette and Ferrari and Porsche uh, and and the likes, but in the ALMS in 2007 and Sebring, they were only they were only private entries. Um, Kevin Buckler raced uh, Aston Martins for for three or four seasons, uh, not only in the American Le Mans series but in the uh, amateur side of uh, of of the GT classes uh, and, and that sort of stuff. So. Um, they have uh, have carried on uh, both at Le Mans uh, and um, most most uh, most recently, TF Sport has been the customer car uh, that has provided the most success, uh, not only at the 24 Hours of the Nurburgring but also at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Um, they have two, you know, multiple 
entries in the GTM category, and there's always a TF Sport uh, car there. In in 2020, TF Sport finished second overall at the in the AM class to uh, GTE Pro to to another Aston Martin. 2020 was actually a great year. First and third in Pro, and first and second in um, in in the GTM category. So so in the modern era, they had six class wins and 15 podiums in class. Of course, no, uh, these cars don't really compete. Couple of top fives in the overall as uh, attrition. Uh, carried on. There was a little bit of a, much like um, their Formula One uh, dalliance, I'll call it for lack of a better term. Uh, in, in, in 2009, you guys may recall the prototype, the, the, the Aston Martin prototype, the, the DBR1 stroke two, that was based on a Lola chassis with the, the Aston Martin power plant, uh, finished uh, fourth overall, but it was the fastest of the petrol cars. Again, you, you remember this is when Audi and Peugeot uh, were, were racing the diesels. So again, um, you know, the DBR1 stroke two claimed the, the Le Mans series title. Um, but again, they, they entered uh, prototype racing right a year late and a dollar short almost because the, the top teams had moved on to diesel and then moved on to hybrids. And the the uh, DBR1 and then the later AMR1 um, raced until um, 2011. The last uh, it had quite a bit of success in the ha- in the ALMS in the hands of Greg Pickett and his Muscle Milk team. They took four wins uh, in in 2011, uh, and the last uh, the last win for that prototype came at Laguna Seca. And ironically, it wasn't the Muscle Milk team that had had so much success. They were a DMF, DNF. It was the uh, Aston Martin Racing entry. There were two entries that year. It was the season finale. Funny how everybody always likes to show up at Laguna Seca for the season finale and the, and the big <laughs> party at the end of the year. Um, yeah. hard, hmm. hard to understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. But then, <laughs> but then they, they abandoned that program and went back to uh, – full-time uh, when the Vantage came out against win on Sunday, sell on Monday, they debuted the Vantage and uh, the V8 Vantage uh, raced in the, the GTE category. The V12 Vantage was a GT3 car. And so uh, it, from 2012 through, uh, through modern day, that's what's, uh, that's what's been uh, carrying the banner for Aston Martin. And yeah, it's, it is, I think we're all realizing now, a banner which is sometimes very glorious and sometimes is is less so, and that's always been about the commitment of the factory. That you were you were talking about those those latter days, the the AMR one and those those cars and the DBR one stroke two. That although they were entered in inverted commas by the factory, uh, they were privately funded and that they were. They were not factory cars in the way that the Audis or the Peugeots were. Oh, uh, true, and and in fact, that's one of the <laughs> that that happens uh, a lot more in, in, than we realize in um, in motorsport, especially in endurance racing. Everybody loves to tout the success of the Porsche nine fifty six uh, as a, the factory cars and that sort of stuff. Those cars wouldn't have been built if Rothmans hadn't agreed to step up and pay the bill. 
and Porsche as a as a company, the racing department is a profit center, and so had I mean Rothmans financed those cars completely from from start to finish, and had they not stepped up, we, who knows if we'd ever seen the nine the nine fifty six, much like the uh, the the other prototype that um, was was still born in, in nineteen ninety nine. Like they couldn't find anybody to step up uh, to to pay that to pay that large bill. And so that uh, the success of Audi at that time, and then the, the uh, addish addition of, of Peugeot uh, left that car on the, there, there was one of them built. Uh, we saw it at uh, Goodwood a couple years ago. Yeah, we did. It, was, yeah. it was the first time that car would been out publicly and had been denied for many, many years. Um, but, yes, but, yes, I, it- but I, but I digress. It's uh, yeah. I mean, you've just given me another idea for another podcast, but that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's beside the point. Now, you talked, Jim, about that wide range of different uh, parts of our sport that Aston Martin have been involved in, and that because the brand is now over a hundred years old, there is a huge range of different cars which are still out there racing and. Joe, I know that you've been very closely involved with the Aston Martin Owners Club over many years and that there's some there's some fabulous cars out there, aren't there? Yeah, I uh, I first got involved in the Aston Martin Owners Club as their commentator back in 1998. Hard to believe that it's over, what, tw- it's over 22 years since I began commentating for the Aston Martin Owners Club and uh, commentating with my good friend, uh, Peter Snowden, Snowy, who just happens to be here. Uh, Snowy, I refer to those days back in the early 2000s with that grid full of DB4 lightweights as the halcyon days of the Aston Martin Owners Club. Uh, would you agree? Hello, Joe. Yes, I absolutely would. It, uh, I, think, I think you referred to it at the time as the uh, one of UK... Um, national motorsports best kept secrets and I think you are absolutely spot on with that summary 20 I hate to say by the way 23 years ago this year oh don't remind <laughs> Add me. another one in don't remind me uh, story you've been part of the Aston Martin Owners Club for well as as long as you've actually been alive I think yeah absolutely uh, father was v- vice president uh, in the latter days and always uh, always involved grew up around it so being very fortunate it's been uh, it's in the DNA and uh, never thought as a little kid uh, that I'd get to, to drive, let alone race some of these cars, um, modern ones included, but these lovely DB4 lightweights, which uh, hold a very, very special place in, in my heart. Now, they've drifted away, and my understanding is the reason why we don't see so many, if any, racing these days is because they just became so valuable. How, how did it all start? How did the DB4 as a, a road-going sports car, family car, actually, uh, end up as a race car? Well, it's, it's quite simple. You're right. It is about values, but it's actually the fact that they weren't valuable enough was the point extraordinarily. Back in the uh, early 60s, Aston Martin obviously had won the World Sports Car Championship in 59, uh, including Le Mans, that famous 1-2 at Le Mans. Uh, they ceased uh, developing the competition programme and ceased making cars. Uh, larger European uh, dealers wanted to, particularly the French, wanted cars again so they did a, what they called the what we call the project cars so db4 gt zagato and the project cars those amazing uh 212 214s and the 215 
Um, and there was a, a guy, Richard Williams, in the late 70s, had the idea that had Aston actually homologated their road car at the time, i.e. the DB4, then this was his interpretation of it. And the reason he did it was the, the values were were quite remarkable. At the time, we're talking mid-70s, you could buy a DB4 for a couple of thousand quid, uh, unbelievably. It was still a chunk of money then, but it wasn't like, yeah, they were old cars. Nobody wanted them. So we had the idea of turning them into a race car, and it didn't create a race series. You just started making them. Uh, Richard Williams was an ex-factory um, apprentice himself, so very um, involved in it. And that's how they came about. Uh, all through the 80s, 90s, and into the mid-noughties. So they probably had a 25-year run, if you think about it. That's where you, know, you and I remember it from, um, Joe. Mm. Um, they, you know, they were the car to have. They, they were you know, 400 brake horsepower and 1,000 kilos. Um, you know what? What's as Jerry Marshall said at the time? What's not to like? And you've you've driven them, Snow. You've raced them. In fact, uh, I've haven't you raced every all of them? <laughs> haven't you raced every single one that I've seen? Not, not quite. <laughs> there are, there are <laughs> it feels that way sometimes. Um, there were twenty five. They're mostly DB fours. There is a, there's a DB six uh, and a couple of DB fives in there, but they're mostly DB fours. Um, and they. I've raced uh, or driven 11 of them. So only just, not even quite, just over halfway, not even quite half of them. So it sounds good, but uh, yeah. I remember them on cross plies. I think they then went <laughs> on to a radio, didn't they? But um, I, I talk about the, the synchronized oversteer out of the Donington chicane. And you've seen that from a different perspective, i.e. in the car, in that train of cars. What were they like to actually race with? Quite extraordinary. Um, I mean, a that the camaraderie and stuff in the club and the people. It was uh, it was absolutely amazing. You know, they're you know they're, they're thin aluminium, so they bend very easily. Total opposite of touring cars. No contact. Uh, you know, they're valuable cars in period. Still, there was still you know a fair chunk of money. It was still. Let's face it, we're talking about an Aston Martin being cheap, but it's still an Aston Martin. Still going to cost a lot to put right on bodywork because they they're just tin foil. They fold very easily. Uh, the racing was always great, but the cars themselves, they're just extraordinary. i have They hold a very, very special place in my heart because they are quite simply one of the most exciting visceral cars to drive. They're just, they're just incredible. They move around, uh, get them in the wet or the, or the damp. And you said at the beginning that you know, they, they've drifted away. Well, that was exactly what they did do. They drifted away everywhere. And you know what? Pe- people might think historic racing, and I did before I got involved with the Aston Martin Owners Club, I always saw historic racing as people racing their, these historic cars, but not were they really racing? You know, it wasn't exactly British touring car levels. Mm. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. In the Aston Martin series on the Amok Bill, these DB4 lightweights went at it, and there was damage, there was nudging, there was door-to-door racing. These guys were on the absolute edge with this in this particular series um so yeah they, they were being raced and it's it's a kind of shame you see the odd one coming out of the uh you know being dusted off and wheeled out for an historic festival but i'm talking about the early 2000s um with the aston martin owners club and where we had you know maybe 12 of these cars perhaps more um that were absolutely driven and raced a bit like British touring cars were. Jim, would we see would we see old Astons racing in the US? Not very many. Most of the good cars are in Europe, and they don't come over. There are some that race. Um, you do see 
at some of the HSR events, you see some of those. I, I think I talked earlier about uh, Kevin Buckler's team. You see some of those cars uh, competing. There were some, a couple of cars that competed in the what was the Pirelli uh, the Pirelli uh, Challenge uh, um, or uh, Continental Tire Challenge in the American Le Mans Series. I get my uh, GT3 series mixed up. <laughs> yeah, um, easily done. <laughs> yeah, uh, you see those cars racing, but you very seldom see the the real classic cars that that Joe's talking about. Uh, and and that's too bad because those those cars are 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 absolutely fantastic. Now, what you do see, uh, the rare occasion is what I would probably use the American term knockoff uh, cars, and those are the modern built replicas of the DBR1, which is when I finally win the lottery, uh, I'm going to drop down my hundred thousand pounds and get myself one of those. Um, and you'll see one of those uh, arriving uh, on the road occasionally, but nobody's racing uh, that kind of stuff over here for the most part. Know, there may be some stuff out on the West Coast that I'm not familiar with, so uh, I'm sure the Twitter sphere will quickly correct me if I'm wrong on that. The, oh, I'm sure of that. Um, yeah. If uh, an unashamed plug that um, Andrew saw from ASM... Um, who are based up in Norfolk, produce a brilliant, lovely, one. lovely um, cars. Yes, you you stuff. you exposed me to that at Goodwood, and and you ruined my life. I, I, <laughs> I must yeah, say, it's it's a it's a fabulous looking car, and uh, yeah, it would be fun. Um, you don't you don't have to pretend it's real. You don't have to do any no. of those kind of things. Just just go and enjoy it. And watch exactly. people smile at it. You know, it's it's great. So. That's it for another edition of uh, Historic Racing News Radio Show. Gentlemen, thank you for some fascinating stuff around almost everything we've talked about. Paul Chur, thank you for your thoughts on the, um, or keeping your ears to the ground on developments in the world of historic motorsport. And there's plenty of those going on. Jim Roller, thank you for your thoughts on the glorious Aston Martin sports cars, which I uh, appreciate. Joe Bradley, thank you for... Looking back at Aston Martin's heritage and Peter Snowden, we'll be back as usual on the last Wednesday of the month in April, and that's the 28th in April. Um, so thanks again to my guests. Don't forget, you can follow historicracingnews.com on Facebook, on Twitter, at Hist Racing News, and on our YouTube channel, as well as on our website. Um, you've been listening to the Historic Racing News radio show. My name is Paul Tarsi. As always, until next time, bye for now. This program is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLamont.com.